0: to Soundtrack Showdown the monthly podcast where two soundtracks in film, TV games and other medium are pitted against each other I am your sonic host, Ella Coba, and with me today is my co-host and orchestral classical trained expert,
1: Tristan Kane. Hi there, Ella. Hey. A little intro as to who we are. Ella and I are both aspiring film composers based here in today quite foggy London, <laughs> but of course we're also diehard film music fans.
0: So this is our first episode, aka first match. So without further ado, let's introduce our contenders. Bernard Herrmann's 1960s Psycho versus
1: John Williams' 1975
0: Jaws. Now, these two established a trend in the way horror music is used to create tension, suspense and even the monster reveal. What do you think of the film and the film score when you first watched it, Tristan?
1: Oh, um, I mean, absolutely. I I don't think there's any other movies where I remember the music quite like you do with these two. There's something really kind of special about them. I think there's a a lot of films, like maybe musicals, where you remember the words to to all of the songs. And for me, that's Aladdin. For you, that would be...
0: Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before
1: Christmas, of course. And there's other ones where maybe you you walk out of cinema and you're like humming along to mm. to, to the the tunes. For me, that would be that would be Lord of the Rings.
0: Uh, that would be Batman Returns. But
1: these two, it's just like there's something about them. That just sort of like it burns into your soul. It's mm. like when you like stare at the sun and don't do that at home, kids. Mm-hmm. And, and and how like the the light just gets kind of like stuck in your eyes for a while. There's something about them where. Every time you, you hear the, the shrieking violins of Psycho, you just you just think getting stabbed in the shower. Mm. Every time you hear that, da-dum, da-dum, you just immediately think shark.
0: So without further delay, let's start round one.
1: So in this round, we're starting off with the pointy end of both scores, shall we say? Yeah. The uh, violin rip of um, Psycho versus the <laughs> exactly of Jaws. <laughs> Now we should probably explain before we start just quickly what we mean by motif as opposed to theme. I think that they're slightly technical terms. I think particularly theme is maybe used Mm. interchangeably with motif a lot of the time. But in this case, we're using motif quite specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, Motif is basically a very short, identifiable fragment of music. Short is a key detail there. It's just a single idea represented musically that you can then attach to something, like to the shark or to the stabbing motions of the knife. They're distinct from themes, which we'll get to in the next round, Themes are a bit longer. If a motif is a musical word, then a, a theme is a sentence or a paragraph, so a theme can have sort of romance and despair, whereas a motif will be just threat or just action or something like that. It'll make more sense as we get into it, because these two, as, as it turns out, are perfect examples of, of motifs and how motifs work. Mm. So we'll start off with Jaws. We've vocalised already a few times the, the iconic... Well, we hear this particular piece of music whenever the shark is around. It stands in literally for the shark. I don't know if you know this uh, at home, but uh, they had huge issues with the mechanical shark in in filming this film. It was basically a massive pneumatic puppet that he had built. But unfortunately, despite the fact that they were going to be shooting the film entirely at sea and on water, it, uh, it, it it didn't operate very well in salt water. It kept on trying to sink, it kept breaking down, and so they couldn't use it very often. And so they had to um, employ lots of different tricks to imply the shark without ever actually showing it. And that shark motif sells the presence of the shark at all times. Now one of the cool things we're able to do with this motif is adapt it to tell us where the shark is and what it is doing. So when the music is slow, low and quiet, that's when the shark is distant and it's just lurking. As, As the shark sort of clocks onto a target and starts to attack, it gets louder and faster. And that's how we know instinctively that the shark is on the move, even though we can't see it. And we also get touches like horn rips to represent the biting of the shark, or even psycho-esque shrieks from the violins to mimic the screams of his victims. Now what I'd like to do now is give you an example of how all of this fits together with a cue from the movie. This cue comes from the first attack of the film. Only a couple of minutes in, a girl called Chrissy is skinny dipping in the water. She'd encouraged a guy to join her, but lucky for him, he's too drunk and he falls asleep on the beach. The cue begins as we cut to an underwater, shark's eye view looking up at Chrissy on the surface. takes a big bite as she jerks under the water. We cut to the beach where the boys are asleep, so the music just goes away for a bit. Now she grabs onto a floating boy. Maybe she'll be okay. And here are the psycho-like shrinks from the violin. A lot of the, the genius of this is of, of the horror of it is that we don't get to see the shark. And that um
0: It's always implied.
1: It's always implied. The shark is almost like a subtext of terror. And that's a a real sort of horror trope and sort of one of the the best things in horror, and I know you've seen a a lot of horror films, Mm. is when you have those moments where the the character on screen is in danger and we know that they're in danger and we know more or less where the danger is and it's about to happen. But they are completely unaware of that danger. And that creates a real sort of sense of sort of sympathy for the character, but also like a real anxiety in the audience because it's that sort of don't go in there. Mm-hmm. kind of moment and in a lot of films that results in sort of like really cheesy kind of things like people walking backwards into dark rooms and that kind of stupid stuff but in this it really works because you've got particularly in like those opening scenes like people just sort of instantly paddling and playing about in the water they're obviously completely unaware they're just having fun at the beach but we know that there's a shark because we hear that music or we see that Mm. shark eye view and that helps create that that tension that sort of really drives particularly the first half of this film because we don't even see the shark for the first hour of Jaws which is unbelievable when you think about it
0: but again that's a great trope in that it forces people to use their own imagination, which a lot of the times, you know, in the past films, that's what they were based on. That's mm. what people, the directors, you know, cinematographers, you know, as well as composers were relying on. Nowadays, you know, I think I do find in films that it's all about just show the monster as quickly yep. as possible, mm-hmm. which I think kind of loses the surprise element. Definitely. And, you know, I think one film that kind of worked very well in terms of and forcing people to use their imagination. I don't know if you've seen the uh, autopsy of Jane Doe. No, I have not. But that's a very good one. But again, if if you want to check out the music side of it, we can discuss it maybe in one mm. of our episodes at a later Sounds stage.
1: Good. So we should probably get onto some actual music. Um, so what is what is the jaws the jaws motif doing musically? The first thing we really like to talk about with this jaws motif is is the pitch. It's very low. It's very deep. Horror music is is very psychological. Trying to induce a certain response from your audience. And we're definitely going to get that with, with psycho in a moment. And one of the sort of the the most sort of basic theories is that low pitches are predators and high pitches are prey. And sort of the, the theory is obviously it goes back through through evolution of pretty much all the animals that are out there hunting and, and killing us as human beings have these low growls, like bears, lions, that kind of thing. So when we when we hear like a low growling sound, we get this kind of tension of is this or is this not a predator? And at the other end of the spectrum, the very high screeching sounds—they sound like screams of a prey animal being attacked. And obviously, if you're, you know, on the plains or something, and you hear something else getting attacked, you're like, okay, that's another sign. There's a predator around. So that creates fear in a in a different way. In the case of Jaws, we we actually we actually hear both, but we start off with this low pitch of the shark, which really helps it sort of dig into that is the shark. It identifies very clearly with with that. And you'll notice over the course of the film that only the shark gets low pitches. In Jaws, mm-hmm. all the other music is sort of mid to high range music. The shark is the only thing that gets to sort of play down in those depths, which you know works obviously on a on a meta level. The motif itself is very it's very simple. It's very rhythmic, completely brainless. There's basically no melody at all. You just got those two notes that, and then every now and then a, a third, slightly lower note, just for the just for accent. And that rhythm gives it sort of this really kind of like primal quality. It sort of, it feels very primitive, which is something they were very much going for with the the shark. They, they explain it constantly through the film. That it's this primitive eating machine mm. <laughs> that's just that's just hunting after people because that's all it knows and all it does. A very sort of unsophisticated view of sharks, as basically it, as
0: it like, like insatiable, as they say.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It also has this wonderful sort of flowing undulating quality that fits that side to side swagger that a shark has. The sort of that, that semitone alternation between it sort of gives it that real sort of flow through the water.
0: Right, so then let's move on to Psycho.
1: So for Psycho, our motif is obviously those famous screeching violin rips, so often imitated since.
0: So can I ask, so you would say the monster motif would be primarily when the murder scene in the sh- like the shower scene that would be classed as the monster motif.
1: I think it it's definitely, in in terms of directly comparing to jaws it's definitely the monster motif. It's obviously very much the the murder motif. We literally hear these three times mm-hmm. um during the course of the film and in every situation it is Norman dressed as his mother attacking someone with a knife.
0: Spoiler alert.
1: Spoiler yeah, I mean <laughs> there we go. But but that's it. It very literally represents those ideas. I suppose it doesn't technically represent the movement of the knife because in the third one he's not actually he never gets to the point of stabbing. That's the massive spoiler alert. But yeah, it definitely represents him as his mother attacking people with a knife.
0: The music really, I think, represents nerve endings being torn Mm -hmm. apart.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now in terms of technique, we should probably talk about what actually happens here. So, so what you're hearing is a very quick glissando, right at the top of the range of the violins and violas. So normally on a violin, what you're doing is you've got your, your finger on a string and you, you play the string with a note and that gives you a very single note. If while you're playing that note, you then push your finger up the string, you get this kind of like duh, rising in pitch. They're doing it very quickly and right at the top range of the violin, which gives you that kind of sound. Very, very unpleasant <laughs> And then over the course of the motif we hear it come in from with different instruments and at different pitches which is what gives us that ferocity of the scene because it just seems like it's coming from every possible direction. Why do, why do you think it works? Why why do, why do you think this sort of like screeching violin just works so perfectly for someone getting stabbed in a shower?
0: Because I don't think it's ever been done for one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think the murder scene or just generally murder has been ever represented in that way, in that sort of like raw, Mm. um, violent, um, quite sadistic way. Mm. I mean, you've
1: got to remember people that... I mean, it's hard to get back into that mindset of 1960, but mm. immediately before the, the murder happens, there's a scene where she she's, like, been writing, I think, um, writing about how much money she's spent and that kind of thing, and she tears up the note and she throws it into the toilet and we actually see, like, the toilet flush. And hear the
0: toilet and hear the flush. And hear the
1: toilet flush. That was controversial in that 1960. That never happened before. It never happened before. Like, to, to audiences then, that was crazy. The fact that at the beginning of the film, when she was in bed with her lover, she was in uh, Janet Come Lee was in her underpants... That. That that also was like spectacularly controversial, and now she's in a shower getting stabbed to death. Like this is next next level crazy to go and from naked there.
0: as well. Which yes. I know we don't see anything, but um, from my notes, I've read that you know the. The censors were really adamant in saying, oh, we saw a naval there, mm. so we can't show this. But, you know, Hitchcock famously said to them, oh, it's just the, it's the, your mind playing tricks on you. Mm. You know, if you go shot by shot, there's nothing there. And also the technique of the editing was, very, was done mm. for the very first time. And um, I'm not sure how many edits there were in the minute, but I know that there were at least like 45 edits cut mm. in between, and that's quite unusual.
1: But I, I will say that watching it now in sort of 2018... <laughs> It is kind of laughable, like, the the sort of lack of violence here. Like you watch the knife. The knife never gets within a foot of mm-hmm. Janet Lee, And, like, the sort of... The, the navel shot that you sort of mentioned, like, it is quite funny. If you see this, like, close-up on a navel, nothing above, nothing below, like, just navel. And then you see, like, a full knife, like, right in front. And you see, obviously, the full knife, which means it's not in...
2: Mm. <laughs> it's not
1: in that chest at all. It's just in front. And it it is quite strange, the way it all works. And even... There's no makeup or anything on her as well. Like the sort of afterwards, she's sort of crawling out of the bath, and you see see her like entire back essentially. There's there's not a mark on her. There's not a drop of blood on her.
0: Oh, I think that would just basically have the film banned. Probably yeah, it, it probably sure. would
1: have had the ba- the film banned. But it, it it is quite sort of strange how, in many respects, how kind of clean it is. But, but I, still
0: I, effective. But though. still
1: effective. And I-, I think a lot of it is part of the effect of this score is it is so. Like Those violin rips, they are so violent and they are so unpleasant. I swear three-quarters of the audience probably never saw that scene because mm. I reckon most of them probably recoiled at the sound.
0: We'll fast forward it now.
1: Yeah, we'll fast forward it now, but they probably recoiled at the sound, pretty much put their hands in front of their eyes and then imagined this person being like gruesomely killed, mm. which was far worse than anything he was allowed to actually put to film.
0: Cool. So then who do you think wins this round then?
1: These are two of the most iconic motifs in, in the history of cinema. It's very, very hard to judge between them. But I'm going to give this one to Jaws purely because, to me, I think the Jaws motif gives him more flexibility. He's able to do more with it. He's able to tell a story of a character with mo- that mm-hmm. motif, the changing of pace, the changing of depth. He tells us more about the shark. Whereas the Psycho, while it's amazing and it is more definitely more shocking and more... Fear-inducing than that Jaws theme.
0: I think it's more based on action. It's
1: based on action, and it's one thing. It's, mm. it's one idea, and he sort of almost paints himself in a corner. You can't do anything else with that one theme. Mm-hmm. So I think overall, I'm going to give that one to Jaws. What about you?
0: No, I completely agree. And as I said earlier, I think I completely agree that the I think the if we're talking about monster motifs, which is character motifs, then the Jaws one is character-based, mm. whereas the jaw uh, the Cycle one is more action. Mm. So you only see. It doesn't really represent Norman Bates as a character. No, it, it represents a
1: knife as much as it does him.
0: Exactly. So.
1: And it doesn't give you any of the, because it's Norman Bates, or it's kind of Norman's, because the explanation at the end is Norman's mother taking over. Norman. It doesn't give you any of that nuance. This is pure violence mm-hmm. distilled into a couple of notes.
0: Exactly. So in that sense, I for this round, I completely agree. The winner is Jaws. Jaws. our next round is going to be focusing on the main theme. So Tristan, tell us about what is the main theme.
1: This round is very interesting. For Jaws, we'll be talking about a piece of music, uh, I believe, which is called Man vs. Beast, which we first hear about halfway through the film, which essentially marks the movement of the film from the first act, which is a horror film about sharks, to the second act, which is a group of men chasing after a, a killer shark. For Psycho, we're talking about its main title theme, the theme that we hear over the opening titles. So without further ado, we'll get on to Jaws. So this is the Man Against Beast theme. Much like the shark, we don't hear it until the second half of the film. The first time we hear this theme is as the orca leaves the harbour. Now the orca, as you might remember, is is the boat that they all travel on to to go out and hunt the sharks. We've got Quint, Hooper and Brody all all on the boat. Quint at this point is doing his full ridiculous seafaring just random jargon that he's throwing around is pretty much full, full pirate mode. And we hear this piece of music. Wow, that was uh that was romantic and very and very very classic mm. classic Hollywood.
0: I felt like I was watching a different film.
1: Yeah, it it is. I've seen these words from from Williams in an interview. He was describing the first time he saw this film that he went back to, to Spielberg and was like this is like a pirate movie. I think we need pirate music for this because there's definitely something primal about it, but it's also fun and it's entertaining. And I think that's that's what he's going for here. He's going for this sort of like swashbuckling Errol Flynn. Everyone's going out to sort of you know save save the world, save save the town from the shark kind of. And it's it's yeah, it's a very old Hollywood theme. It's it's all woodwinds and brass. It's impossible not to link this with uh, the sort of the corn gold, Errol Flynn, Captain Blood kind of adventures. Exactly. It does go with the character of Quint, who is being so sort of classic sea dog. He's on a mission. He's on a mission, but he's also like, he's, he, he comes off like something from another world. Mm. Like, everyone else is meant to feel really contemporary. Like, the mayor's all about the commerce of the town. And he's meant to be this, like, New York cop who's scared of water and stuff like that. Mm. But no, but Quint doesn't have any time for that sort of stuff. He's, he's just, you know, singing sea shanties and banging on about, you know, fish and sea maids and mermaids and whatever. He's like, he's basically completely off the planet. And, and this goes really, really well with that you <music> It a huge call to use it then because we'll talk about it in a moment how that sort of sound was really out of fashion. But frankly, even now where Williams is hailed as something of a god and we, we expect these kind of like big orchestral kind of movements for a summer blockbuster movie, you wouldn't get away with this piece now, do you think?
0: No, because I think we have gone away from tradition. I think mm. we like to try and incorporate something new and different. And mm. We've got... I think this is one thing that we can talk about a bit later on that I found John Williams never maybe experimented with the production and Mm. sort of various sound styles as much Mm. as possible. He kinda stuck to his own sort of traditional classical Mm. background and jazz influence. But do you know why he wouldn't actually get away with it now? Is because he got away with it in nineteen seventy five because a lot of the music before Jaws was quite jazz and they had Mm. a lot of pop music was incorporated into Films, and then he came along, brought it back, in, and it felt like a shift.
1: So it felt new because it felt it, new. It was, it had been out of out of circulation for a while. Exactly. Oh, yeah, I think that's definitely true. The other thing I'll say is that that, that jarring quality it have is is almost part of its job. I think that is actually pretty key because this is a shift in the film. The moment that boat leaves, we do shift from an unseen terror shark sort of like stalking the the dark waters, and into this. Swashbuckling adventure adventure. Mm. And it is important to kind of like Shake the audience out of that that, Because our mood towards the shark changes Until this moment Brody and particularly Brody Has no agency with the shark Anyone who goes in the water can get eaten by the shark And Brody can't do a thing about it but now he's there, we've got Quint, who's like this sort of sailing sea dog, we've got Hooper, who's an expert in sharks. There's a sense now that they can actually do something about the shark. And I think that that's an important emotional change in the course of film, that we need to believe that they can beat the shark. And I think that's part of where this sort of really romantic theme kind of comes in. Because it then almost needs to be a shock when they have troubles beating the shark.
0: Exactly. So, tell us about the Psycho's main themes. When you're discussing Psycho's main theme, are you mm. discussing in particular what tracks and what scenes?
1: So for Psycho, our main theme, unlike Jaws, which we don't hear until halfway through, we're talking about the theme that we hear over the opening titles. So the opening titles is one of these classic, like, Hitchcock, Saul Bass deals with the, the, the crazy text graphics, and we hear this cue. <laughs>
0: is that Herman was initially asked to score it as a light, jazzy, bebop kind of score. He obviously went against it. Yes.
1: So this theme appears both in the main title and during the film, and it has different purposes in, in each of those two cases. As a main title, what your main title of music has to do, it has to prepare you for the action that's ahead. So in the case of Jaws, the, the opening title actually has that, that shark motif to sort of get you ready for this like scary shark movie, in this case, its job was basically to sort of tell you that this is going to be a pretty uncomfortable, weird kind of a film that's going to go into some pretty dark places. And I think it communicates that quite well. You hear that music and you immediately know, okay, we're we're in for something. It's sort of like when you first get on like a roller coaster, and you sort of you just leave the station and you just got that that quick moment in your head of oh no, what I've got myself into. Mm-hmm. This is this, am, am I am I quite ready for this? Hitchcock actually made a big thing about Psycho that he wanted his audiences to be in the theatre before the movie started which is apparently not a thing in the 50s and 60s that he necessarily expected that your audience was going to be there right from the start but he wanted to make sure they were so this has a kind of extra duty on it to like immediately catch the audience and, and tell them this is the sort of film you're watching it's going to be kind of dark and, and, and a bit unpleasant at times
0: So the next time we hear is obviously when Marion is, well, stealing the money Mm-hmm. And when she's uh, obviously driving off. And I find that really interesting because for me, whenever I heard that music, there's an element of kind of like rushing, rushing to get away, mm-hmm. you know, of like, got to go, got to go. So for me, it really amplified this anxiety.
1: Exactly. I think, I think it's all about anxiety. I think mm. literally the next time we hear it is, yeah, she's decided to steal the money, she's driving out of town and she's stopped at a traffic light and her boss, who she's just stolen money from, looks at her. And then we get a close-up on her face, and this music starts. And then she drives off. And the next couple of times we hear it, uh, uh, there's a point where she's being chased by a cop, and another time where she's driving in the rain, and she's quite scared, which is kind of interesting that we hear this a lot of times when she's being pursued by men and which there's falling water. Oh, and we, and we should note that while this music represented her anxiety, we don't hear it anywhere near where she actually dies.
0: No, exactly. It
1: sort of it shows just how blissfully unaware she is that she's in danger, that she felt she was in danger from the policemen, she felt she was in danger from the, the rain and the tiredness as she was driving. But at that time where she's getting to the shower, she's in no way anxious. So, does it work? I think it does. Yeah?
0: I think it really does, and... Purely for me, I mean, I'm just kind of talking about based on, like, listening to these track, soundtracks, you know, on their own. I did find that Psycho's one, um, I enjoyed it more and found it more effective and more modern, whereas the Jaws one works, at times, I think, I think, better with images as opposed to on its mm-hmm. own. And because there's a sort of juxtaposition of, like, hearing two different films, I found that the concept of the Psycho's theme and the overall soundtrack was more together, Mm -hmm. you knew that you were listening to a mystery thriller. Mm. Um, And I found that with Jaws 1, you know, it was, you know, you can kind of maybe class it as a first jump scare film, but Mm. it was first horror, then adventure. And that kind of made me feel like, was this Steven Spielberg's first film? Second. Second film. So probably for him, he wanted to try and throw as many ideas as possible. Mm. And so, you know, when you were so very eager to impress people and you Mm -hmm. want to try and show them how versatile you are. Throw
1: everything in there. Yeah. Almost overdo it.
0: Exactly. So maybe, to me, I feel that there's an element of that. Mm -hmm. So that's why, for me, I would pick Psycho over Jaws.
1: Yeah, I think I agree. I think it's a much stronger theme. If you were making a film like Psycho now, you could probably use the theme almost exactly like Bernard Herrmann's.
0: Great, so that's one victory for Jaws and one for Psycho. Let's move on to round three, Techniques and Production.
1: So to start off our discussion on technique, I just want to talk briefly about the history of the orchestra and film, because both of these scores are actually key moments in that history. In 1960, Psycho was one of the first big films to move away from the orchestra and the classical Hollywood sound. Then in 1975, Jaws was one of the first to bring it back. So why was that? Between the 1930s, where you first started to really be able to put sound to film, before then obviously you had the silent films, the major studios were required through union agreements with the Musicians' Union in Hollywood to have a full symphony orchestra and composers on staff. So they would actually physically, like Paramount would have the Paramount Orchestra and they would have three or four composers on staff and they would work on every single film. And obviously... The effect of that is if you've got it and you're having to pay this fortune for, like, 80 players and half a dozen composers, is you're going to use them on every single film. And that's where that classic Hollywood sound, the sort of corn-gold-waxman kind of sound, comes from.
0: And we've got a clip from that period from Dimitri Tjomkin's score for Strangers on the Train, Hitchcock's film from 1951, also about a psychopath. But listen to just how different it is from Herman's score.
1: But then in the late 50s, there was a dispute with the unions in Hollywood. And one of the results of that dispute was that the, that requirement to have a standing orchestra and composers on staff ended. So from 1958 onwards, the studios got rid of all of their orchestras and they, had to, and they were using contract musicians for every film. Mm-hmm. So that meant that not only did you not have this sort of impetus to use an orchestra because you've already got them on staff, but there was financial benefit to not using a full orchestra because it would be cheaper, because you're literally paying fewer musicians. And my understanding is that with Psycho, that there were some severe budgetary restraints, and that Homan was actually restricted to only being able to afford a string section, rather than being able to use a full orchestra, which he had been using for films like Vertigo and North by Northwest beforehand.
0: But isn't it great that when you're kind of imposed, you know, to certain limitations, how it forces you to be creative with what, what you're limited to?
1: Absolutely. Limitations can definitely breed creativity.
0: So in that sense, for me, I find that Herman's score is much more innovative mm-hmm. and more thought-provoking and completely different to William's one. Mm-hmm. Do you agree?
1: Oh, absolutely. And Herman's score is actually its actually very on trend for the year because you've got to remember 19, sort of 1958, 1960, I mean, World War II is only 15 years previous to this. And coming out of Europe, you've got this sort of really dark, nasty kind of music being written by people who've lived through like horrible horrible things and strings were actually coming really into sort of vogue amongst those amongst some of those composers as ways of sort of doing some really kind of interesting avant-garde sort of things with sound and i'm going to play you a clip here from a piece of music that was atli- actually written in the exact same year as psycho for 52 strings for an orchestra of entirely strings exactly like bernard Homan used in psycho and it's by a polish composer called P- christoph penderecki So this is a piece called, which was, this was not the the title that it was given at the time that he wrote it, but a title that's acquired uh, subsequently, but it's now known as The Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima by Christoph Penderecki from 1960. That is a truly shocking piece of music. Uh, Ella, what do you think? It's very unsettling. <laughs> so, it's a, But it's a very similar sound to Psycho. It's sort of really interesting that prior to 1958, Hollywood had been living in this romantic music world that had ceased to exist. Uh, mu- music had moved on. It had gone quite modern. You've got things like Stravinsky and Debussy and Satie doing lots of sort of, you know, more or less atonal kind of music. But Hollywood had stuck with the sort of the big, rich sounds, you know, the sweeping scores, the heavy vibrato, all of that sort of stuff. But somehow, somewhere between the the getting rid of the studio orchestras and the sort of change in the sorts of instrumentation that they're using and the introduction of Bernard Herrmann, who's a who was a very much more contemporary composer to the guys who'd come before him, like the Corn Golds and stuff. Who were very much, they were late, genuinely late Romantic composers. Bernard Herrmann's a genuinely modern composer, and he suddenly, pretty much in Psycho, drags film music to the present, mm. where you could have heard the score of Psycho alongside Penderecki in a concert, and you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, these these pieces of music go together, whereas you could not have heard a Corn Gold score along with the same the music that was being written in the nineteen forties. Mm. And, and thought that they in any way went together. But then with, with Jaws, Spielberg himself is very much a traditionalist. Film has been sort of doing this thing, yeah, very sort of modern, very different. They've used a lot of pop songs and a lot more sort of modern music ideas. But Spielberg himself, he comes from... You know, his, his mother, I think, is a concert pianist. He's grown up listening to classical music. He's very into into the old film style. And he comes across John Williams, who's writing in an old style, and actually... Has he links himself back to old Hollywood. And they bring back the symphonic score with the full orchestra and they, they do the, the full bit. And then from Jaws, all of a sudden, like Jaws is a spectacularly successful movie. It's the first film to cross $100 million. It's the first film to be spectacularly commercially successful in summer. It creates this idea of the summer blockbuster film. And Hollywood, as we know, being somewhat of a copycat industry, rediscovers this idea that, oh, people actually do like these these symphonic scores. You can make a lot of money with those things. And it made it a lot easier. And essentially, the, the score was back. And two years later, he does Star Wars and goes even further down this road. That makes even more money and wins an Oscar, and and the rest is history.
2: Mm.
1: Now, I believe you wanted to step beyond music for a bit and talk about sound design.
0: So I found that for both films, sound design is very powerful to lead people emotionally. For Jules, in terms of the sound design, I don't know if you paid attention when the main theme comes in Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the film. There's actually sound effects of water. bubbling water, yeah. Yeah, and um, I thought that was quite interesting to kind of try and already immerse the audience making them feel that they're actually underwater. So
1: take them down to, to the shark's level with the, exactly. the murky visuals and the murky sound combined with, with the music.
0: Yeah, so then when then you see the point of view of the shark, it's almost like when he, as though the shark opens his eyes, he's mm-hmm. awakened, mm-hmm. and now you see what he sees.
1: Mm. So that was the sound design from Jaws. What do you have for us from Psycho?
0: And this is one interesting fact I found when researching, is that no matter how much Hitchcock trusted his composer and sound mixer, he always dictated detailed notes for the dubbing of sound effects and the placement of music. Mm-hmm. So um, here's the next sequence for when uh, Marion is driving through. Hitchcock writes in his script notes saying, when we reach the night sequence, exaggerate passing car noises when headlights show in her eyes. Make sure the passing car noise is fairly loud so that we get the contrast of sound of silence when she is found by the roadside in the morning. And just before the rain starts, there should be a rumble thunder, not too violent, but enough to herald the coming rain. Once the rain starts, there should be a progression of falling rain sound and slow range of sounds passing trucks. Naturally, the windshield wipers should be heard all through the moment she turns them on. The rain sounds must be very strong so that when the rain stops, we should be strongly aware of silence and odd dripping noises that follow.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing that he's so prescriptive of every sound that you hear in the film as much as he is presumably of of every little bit that you see in the frame of the picture.
0: Mm. I wish all directors could be like that. It
1: could be that precise, yeah, Mm. absolutely. So having heard that, I'm sure we all want to hear what that sounds like in film. So here's the clip.
0: So overall, who do you think is the winner then? In
1: terms of technique and production? I think, I think I've think i got to go with Psycho for this one because I've got to go with, with Herman who brings that sort of modern concert hall music into film. He makes a huge change. You've got to go with the guy who brings in the new rather than the person who brings back the old, surely.
0: Oh, yeah, no, I completely agree. Like, in particular, the fact that um, atonal... I don't know if you want to explain what atonal music exactly
2: means. <laughs>
1: Atonal music is music that sort of moves away from the sort of traditional ideas of tonality. So, so normally with a piece of music, you talk about it sort of being in a major key or a minor key, or, or those sorts of things. Atonal music is in essentially no key, mm. and it creates a sort of there is no there is no root. There's no grounding to the music, so it's always really uneasy. And uncomfortable because he sort of it could go anywhere at any time. And it sort of just flows a lot more uneasily around the place.
0: Which is why I agree with you in the fact that psycho because it rejected the classical conservative conventions, you know, of the tonal system, and therefore emancipated dissonance, mm. you know, and encouraged it, you know, and brought in that a film
1: and shown what you can showed what you can do with it
0: exactly. And how much that can affect the audiences feelings as Mm -hmm. well so whereas for me Jaws is kind of going back to conventions he's going back to the classical tonal system as you mentioned earlier he's Mm. bringing back the Hollywood orchestral background and I found that Psycho is going more away and introducing something new being more radical Mm. even so
1: yeah and, and Herman's doing something which which film has done ever since which is actually they it uses music which people would never listen to outside of film people don't go to concert halls to listen to Orcus's Play, something like Threndy for the Victims of Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. But they will go to a horror film that will use all of the same techniques. Uh, in fact, that exact same piece of music is in The Shining. Okay. Kubrick uses it a number of times. So it's this sense of this music that, that people would never listen to otherwise, but you can use it in a cinema for a purpose and it works. Mm-hmm. And that people will be drawn into it and people won't reject a film simply because they don't like the music. The, the music will actually just enhance their experience and they won't even realise that they listen necessarily listen to this music that is essentially really unpleasant.
0: So then our next round is round four of suspense music.
1: Yes. So in this round, we're going to be talking about a cue from each film. Each film obviously has a number of pretty spectacular suspense moments, but we've picked what are probably the two best ones. From Jaws, we're going to be talking about a particular scene where Hooper and Brody, quite early in the film are sort of searching for the shark and they come across a boat. We're going to call that the Ben Gardner's boat scene. And actually a similar sort of emotional scene in Psycho, we have a scene where Arbogast, who's a private investigator who's been hired to track down what's happened to Marianne Crane, goes into the, the Bates' mansion to try and sort of, I, th- I think he's actually specifically trying to talk to Norm Bates' mother, who he's seen the silhouette of, in the window. So with Ben Gardner's boat. So this is the first time we really see any action at sea during this film. Brody and Hooper are out in his boat looking for evidence of the shark. Hooper says, there's something else out there. And we cue this this mystery music. So here, woodwinds and strings making these sort of minor, meandering lines. It's all very watery, burbling little lines coming through. they come across the boat, these lower strings come in, making it a little darker but not overtly sinister yet we've had a lot of movement in the visuals. The boat's been travelling along, everything's been going. But now the boat stops. The energy comes right out of the track as they discuss whether or not Hooper's going to get into the water. This part is dropped down right in the mix of the final film. Before he jumps in, we hear this little oboe melody. Then, once we cut underwater, the entire texture changes. We're entering the world of the shark. Now we have the harp and uneasy floating high string line. Lots of little flowing, uneasy woodwind lines. There's a lot more menace here than in the mystery when I was sitting on the boat. Now we hear hints of the shark. He finds a tooth and we hear the horn part of the the shark theme. But clearly we also hear a bit of that rhythmic element coming through now. And this is the closest that the film will ever get to cheating of us hearing the music while the shark isn't necessarily there. Ben a sort of face come, come, out of the, come out of a hole in the side of the boat. And then he panics, he drops the tooth and he ends torch. And he sort of swims towards the side of the water and then he climbs out. And then we hear a deep, wavering version of the shark theme as he disappears. And the scene ends. Do you think that it's kind of
0: introducing the first jump scare moment?
1: Yeah, I think it is, because it definitely creates this idea of maybe the shark's there, maybe the shark's not there. And look, part of the shark is there. His tooth is still stuck in the, in the thing. And it, maybe the shark's meant to be there. I guess that is the subtext of what the, the music is telling us right now.
0: And now let's move on to Psycho. And
1: so, Arbogast, he's a private detective. He's been hired to find out what happened to Marion Crane, specifically to track her down as he assumed that she's alive and hiding with, with this $40,000 that's sort of the, the centre of the, of the film. He's had a chat to Norvan Bates. He doesn't seem to trust him as far as he can throw him. And he's seen a silhouette of his mother up at the house. He decides, like a lot of people will decide through this film, that they want to hear the story from the mother. So he goes up to investigate. As he approaches the house, we have this sort of classic Herman and Hitchcock kind of theme. So many of Hitchcock's films are about obsession. And Homer always represents it by these like short rotating motifs that just keep repeating and never really ending or going anywhere. So it sort of gives this idea of like a mind that's like ruminating on an idea and never really moving on. So Arbogast now enters the house, things start to get quite real. The audience knows that this is probably quite a dangerous situation. You hear these long, scratchy high violin notes. It's exactly like we heard in the in the Jaws scene, these high violin notes that sort of up this level of tension. It's very subtle, they just kind of sit there almost in the sound design more than music, but they just, they just build a little bit of anxiety. It's like, okay. It's like where's it gonna
0: end? Where's yeah, it gonna
1: end? Exactly. gets thicker and thicker as he climbs the stairs again exactly like uh, Williams does with his jaw theme, it gets thicker as the danger gets higher and then we cut to a door opening and there's a little viola note we know that this means something, that this door is opening then and then boom, the psycho themes come in. This time as Mother throws open the door and emerges with a knife. And and then we see Albagas fall down the stairs while the stabbing music keeps going on. And then Risey hits the bottom. That's when that, the low, that low drone, the low double bass drone comes in, which fits as perfectly here as it did with the, the death of Marion earlier in the film.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. So then what do you think is the winner for this round then?
1: This was really tough. I... I'm going to give this one to Jaws. I think that Ben Gardner's um, scene, it's, it's so complex and so complicated and it's such a tense scene. It's a lot more complicated than the Psycho One. The Psycho One works and it's very, very, very effective. But I think the Jaws one communicates more. It starts with the mystery of what's going on. It gives you an insight to, okay, there's something out there. We've got hints of shark. We've got hints of just human panic. I think, I think it's got a lot more going on. What about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I might be in the minority here, but in the sense of, like, for me, that scene with Arbogast, I felt that when the screeching comes in, it felt like it came a little bit late.
1: Mm. No, I think you're right. I think it does.
0: So it kind of pulled me out of the suspense Mm -hmm. scene. It just felt a little... Not, not out of place. Out of place is the wrong one. But it just felt like, oh, it should have been a little bit more on time. It didn't have the same effect as it did with Marion, Marion's murder. Yeah. I know, it, again, I felt like I liked the, when he was going up the stairs and that tension built up. But yes. then as soon as the screeching came out, I felt like, uh, yeah, it didn't really mm. work there And And that
1: shot of him falling down the stairs, while it's genius in terms of execution, it just looks so cheesy. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah, so sorry. Yeah. Sorry, home. <laughs> sorry everyone.
1: sorry Hitchcock.
0: Our last round will be focusing on the legacy and audience impact of these two films, mm-hmm. as well as their scores.
1: So we're talking about the, sort of the lasting impact of Psycho. I mean, it's definitely, definitely very significant in film music history and bringing that modern string sound into horror film. I mean, the film itself basically creates the slasher. Genre as we know it. I mean, the sort of the titillating victim, obviously the the, the knife crime, <laughs> and, and all that sort of thing. And and that sound. I mean, you still hear that string sound in modern horror films. You, you'll hear it in like the Conjuring or or Saw or any of those sorts of films. They still go to that nasty atonal dissonant string kind of a sound.
0: And also, if you have to think about in terms of like cultural like our oh, impact, the amount of times that Psycho has been sampled in like Buster Rhymes you know, for example, or even our last song that we're going to be Mm. playing at the end of the track is by the Beastie Boys, where they kind of incorporate both the cycle and the Jaws theme at the end.
2: Mm.
0: And I thought that's quite interesting. I do find that the cycle makes more of an impact. It's much more interesting to the listeners. Mm. And cooler. I think it's much cooler soundtrack.
1: Okay. Now moving on to Jaws. Don't think the ongoing influence is quite as big.
0: It's been parodied. You it's, can say that yeah. it's been parodied, or there's been an homage. Like I know there's a film Grumpy Old Men, and there's a. Oh scene, yes, yes, and it's there's definitely a famous been scene. There. But I think that that has a sort of a legacy and impact in like influencing other composers mm. to kind of you know reference his mm. music a lot. So yeah, and also there was actually a study um, by the University of California, so in, in San Diego and Harvard University, where. They looked at how background music can impact people's perceptions of sharks. You know, yes. For the experiment, they had two groups of people. One group saw video clips of sharks with either ominous background music or uplifting background music or So signs. Jaws or Blue Planet, you mean. <laughs> Yeah, basically, exactly. And then another group saw um, no video but listened to the same music as the first group. And so the results showed that people who viewed a video clip of swimming sharks with ominous background music held a more negative view of sharks and therefore wouldn't be inclined to actually try and help preserve or, like, mm. show support for... Mm. Is that the way you Conservation. Yeah. yeah. So...
1: That's interesting. So, so what that's saying is that the music works, but that perhaps it's not so good in the long term.
0: No, exactly. The paper basically specifies that the late motif from Jaws is a culturally ingrained bit of music that mm. reinforces negative stereotypes of sharks. And this is their quote, which is really interesting. And they're saying basically that there's no question that the dun soundtrack element is one of the most effective horror motifs of all time, perhaps second only to Herman's psycho strings, <laughs> string stabs. Um, well, but, so that's their
1: vote as to who wins. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> um, but they're basically saying that directors and composers should kind of understand that you know, they are quite responsible in how their music forces the viewers to see and relate to what they're seeing.
1: Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. Over oh, the 70s where you could just make a movie about a mindless shark killer without having to think of the, the greater ramifications of what you've done. Okay, so, so is that your is that a vote for uh, Psycho as the...
0: Oh, yeah, Psycho all the way. You know, all the I go way. for the rebel.
1: Yeah. Okay, I, th- I think I'm going to go with Psycho as well.
0: Mm, cool. So, at the end of all our five rounds, it looks like who's our winner, though.
1: It appears to me that Psycho has won three rounds and two rounds to Jaws. So that would be a uh, victory for Psycho. Woohoo!
0: Go Psycho.
1: <laughs> well, don't don't actually go Psycho. Obviously,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> keep the knives in the drawer. Let's let's all it's all stay calm.
0: Why wow, everybody? But it's a win a... for Psycho. What's that favorite say in the Psycho film when Norman Bates saying that? Oh, everybody goes a little bit mad every now and then. Oh, yeah, every now and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It's probably not that time. Um,
0: Well, now that we've chosen our winner... Psycho. Psycho. Don't go psycho, though. Do you agree with our winner or disagree? Either way, we would love to hear from you. You can always find us uh, on tristellarmusic.com as well as the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Again, if you like what you hear and would like to keep track of our monthly episodes, then please subscribe to our Soundtrack Showdown on iTunes and leave us a review.
1: Yes, yes, definitely leave us a review, that really helps And share with your friends Tell your friends about us, get them to listen And have a good icon with your friends about whether Psycho or Jaws are better
0: And now, to announce our next episode We'll be delving into the Bat Caves So we're going to be discussing Danny Elfman's 1989 Batman Classic Versus Hans Zimmer's 2008 The Dark Knight
1: Oh, also classic, I like it
0: Very dark, very innovative as well for their mm, time
1: Very dark, very night.
0: <laughs> Good. So we're looking forward to discussing this and doing our research and like putting them against each other in our next round. And listen so- to
1: men with husky voices.
0: Right. So thanks for listening to Soundtrack Showdown and stay tuned for our next exciting episode.
1: Same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Skunk, he had no hair. Lost that shot, he was caught out there. Saw the convertible driving by. Loaded up the slingshot, let one fly. He went for his divine, he didn't have one. Put him in check correct. My A A symbol of life. I'm going to send out the out to White.